Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Greg Lehman, founder and CEO of Watershed Distillery out of Columbus, Ohio. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So uh, I've been doing a couple of episodes now with uh, distilleries up in, uh, I guess what you would call the Midwest to Great Lakes to Upper Midwest. And uh, but Watershed was one of the first ones I got to try, thanks to being part of Bourbon and Banter. Nice. That's great. And uh, yeah, and I was, you know, I was really impressed. I got to try the bourbon, the bottled and bond, the original cast strength, which we'll get to later on in the episode. Um, but yeah, I've been wanting to talk and I'm glad we could make this work out. So with that, um, I'm going to give you the floor, just, you know, intro how Watershed came to be. Sure. So yeah, we started back in 2010 and it was myself and Dave Rigo, uh, my business partner at the time. And when we came up with the idea to distill, it was one of these, um, you know, you never kind of know exactly where ideas come from, but um, we thought it was wildly unique. There was nobody distilling locally. And we, got, we actually had this conversation where we were like, well, it was, it's probably illegal. Maybe there's a reason why nobody's doing it. And we started searching. And after you know a quick uh, search on the internet, we found that there were other craft distillers in different states. So you know, in, on the coast mainly, um, you saw some craft distilling popping up. And so we got really excited to bring this to Columbus, Ohio and do something unique there. And so it was two guys really at the time that we didn't have any money and we didn't know how to distill, um, but we were very excited about this idea. And it was us asking friends saying, hey, should we make gin? Should we make bourbon right here in Columbus? And everybody we asked said, yes, you should go for it. I, I, now looking back, I see it wasn't their money. Uh, it wasn't their uh, risk. So of course they're like, oh, my buddy's gonna make bourbon. Yeah, go ahead, you do that. Um, so, and this was before bourbon was, you know, was what it is today it's so wildly popular and there's huge support for it um and, and certainly um we knew that there would be risk jumping in but we started doing some research and we wrote a little business plan and raised some money and next thing you know we bought a small still and and brought some product to the market in 2010 and um it was just the two of us probably longer than it should have been and um we were really hesitant to hire any employees and then finally we hired a few and that and we grew more, but it was, it was really just two guys kind of figuring it out together and one step at a time. And we kind of showed up to work each day thinking, Hey, can we keep the lights on today and um, set ourselves up to possibly keep them on tomorrow. And, and we kept going that way. And we hired a few more people and bought a bigger still and a few more people and a bigger still. And it kind of kept growing. And, and I still kind of have that attitude today of, I'm coming into work today and let's see, let's see if we can move the ball forward a little bit and keep this thing going. Awesome. Did you come into it uh, as, you know, as a bourbon drinker, as a bourbon enthusiast, or was it more just, you know, thought distilling would be a cool thing to do and, and fun? No, absolutely loved bourbon, loved whiskey, loved gin, and, um, you know, wanted to be involved in our community. So the job that I had, I, I was I actually worked for Pfizer at the time. And um, my job took me uh, traveling all over in my business partner's job. He traveled quite a bit and was in an industry that, uh, you know, that, that was fine, but he wasn't passionate about. And we wanted somehow to be more involved in our community and do something that we were really excited about, passionate about. 
And um, we definitely got excited about bourbon. And uh, it's easy to find passion in that industry. And so when we started working on it, um, it didn't feel like work. You know, we would put in 60, 70 hours and, you know, we were energized by it. And so that really kept us going. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate enough to uh, have some support at home and, um, you know, be able to make it work because starting out in the bourbon industry is, is tough. And um, when you're putting a product away that you can't sell for a number of years, uh, that, that is really hard to do when you don't have a bunch of money. No, very true. The, the list of distilleries that have been able to kind of hold back their products until I guess usually four years or so, it's pretty small. Like, you know, the Wilderness right. Trail, New Riff. I mean, it's pretty. Yeah, they, those guys limited. start with lots of money to be able exactly. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that when you were looking to start this, there were a couple of craft distilleries mainly on the coast. Um, I know, for example, like Kings County was active at that time. Mm-hmm. They started right about right about the same time we did. Colin and I have talked before, and um, I think the one that I remember was Tuttletown was rolling by the time yeah. we we came into it, and then uh, Blue Coat. So Andrew at Blue Coat was he was a few years before us also. Um, sorry, go ahead. You were going to ask a question. No, and no. I just started chatting about, uh, no, it's uh, all good. Old distilleries. No, it's good. At, at that time, the, the context of, uh, the craft distilling scene at that time is, it's important because what it was 10, 12 years ago is, uh, such a, um, monumental shift from what it is today. Yeah. Volume I believe and, we were in breadth. the first 100 in the U S to come up, to get up and running. And today, yeah, the number is, uh, I, I believe there's close to 3,000 that are registered. I know there's over 2,000 that are producing stuff and kicking stuff out. Um, but, you know, it's it's a huge shift of what it was back then. Absolutely. So when you're looking to, to start up Watershed, you know, what is, I guess, back then and, and now, you know, what does the distilling or even brewing scene look like in, in Ohio, in, in the area in which you are? Well, you know, we, we love beer as well. And when we started, we kind of, we looked at beer and we looked at spirits and we, we saw that beer was saturated. And I say that with a smile on my face because there were, I think four craft breweries in Columbus, Ohio at the time. And we're like, well, that's done. No one's doing spirits. We should do spirits. (laughs) And I think today there's probably 50 in central Ohio, if that probably more than that. And so it really was a, uh, a different landscape and craft beer was popular. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the brewers that were making beer at the time, it was almost, um, kind of field of dreams. Esque. If you build it, they will come. If you build the capacity, you were selling all the beer that you had. And so those guys at the time were just scaling as quickly as they could get capital. And so we looked at that and thought, well, let's do something similar on spirits. What we didn't realize on spirits was it, the, the market wasn't quite um, aware of craft spirits and it wasn't quite the same. And we, we found that um, we really had to go fight for every bottle we sold and get people to taste it and tell the story and get them excited about it. Um, and not that craft beer didn't have to sell at that time, but it seemed it was a much easier road for craft beer at that point. 
And I think the tables have turned a little bit and, you know, craft beer, craft brewers are definitely seeing a little bit of pressure uh, right now that, that we don't be, that we're not seeing quite as much of. Sure. I mean, the, the barriers of entry are higher for distilling in the first place than mm-hmm. um, as this conversation with uh, friends of mine who are more into beer than I am. I'm usually just, you know, give me a good IPA and I'm happy, yeah. but these other guys are, they've got fridges full of, of, you know, cases and cases of beer. But the reality is that a brewery, great, bad, or otherwise, can put out a new product in a week. Yeah. Or so. Yeah. You guys have a little bit longer to, to wait on that. So. Absolutely. You, you know, if you did well, um, you know, within a few weeks in the brewing industry, you know, you could look at sales and see, and you could talk mm-hmm. to consumers. And for us, you're right. Like we have some products aging in our warehouse that um, nobody's tasted. I say nobody, nobody outside of our small team has tasted. And, um, you know, you, you get excited about them, you hope, but it takes a bit to, um, to see if it's good, to see if it's going to be received. And it also, you're tying up all that cash while it just sits there. And, um, you know, as a small distiller, uh, you ask any small distillers out there and none of us have any cash. So <laughs> I don't know, I don't know where it all comes from. We just hustle hard. So fair it's what you got to do yeah right right when you taste some of the end product though you're like oh man it's totally worth it um that's like our bottled and bond when we finally got to that point we're able to release that last year it was such a proud moment of you know the the years and years of work it took to get to that point and you know and you could say well it's only four years but but when you are making it all yourself and you're trying to cash flow it and you're trying to sell enough this year so that you can make enough for four years out. It's such a hard balance. And, and I remember at the beginning, we have a small advisory board and they're just kind of like a, a team that coaches us a little bit. And I remember sitting down with them and explaining why we were making bourbon because they're looking at our books and they're like, so your inventory is going up. And we're like, yeah, we're putting more bourbon away. And they're like, that's a terrible business plan, terrible business idea to put all this money into a product that's four years down the road. And, and I think, you know, we kind of went back at them and said, no, but it's, it's bourbon. We have, to, this is why we're doing this. This is why we're, this is why we're in the business. Uh, and so it, it is a very long road. And I remember just the, the pride of bringing that to market and, and how excited we were and excited to try it and blend it. Uh, when we were, when we were mixing up that first batch of 10 barrels from our stock, it was just, uh, it was a cool feeling and the market has really been, um, embracing it. It's been fun to see. That's awesome. And, uh, we definitely will come back to the bottle and bond. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. I love that product. No, no. I get all excited. To <laughs> no, you're good. It. I, I really enjoyed it when I had it too. So we're, all good on that. Yeah. I just want to close out with the um, just talked about the distilling scene. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask also about the more on the ground, like the environmental aspect of you know why why Columbus, Ohio, why um, that region, and how does that region perhaps give you some differentiating factors in how your whiskey and bourbon develop? Yeah, so I grew up in Central Ohio and went to Ohio State. And, um, and my family's been there for a long time. And so when, when, I, when Dave and I were talking about starting a distillery, 
we really came back to community and we wanted to be involved in this community. And when we were going through the process and raising money and really learning how to distill, there were others in the industry that had been at it for a little bit that said, hey, if you haven't rented a space, if you haven't uh, committed to Central Ohio or to Ohio, then you should really look at going to Oregon or Colorado uh, or New York to start your distillery because the laws are more favorable. And it wasn't even a question. You know, we just kind of, uh, we said, thanks, appreciate the advice. But for us, it was more about Columbus, Ohio and doing something here and uh, being a part of this community. And, and that decision in itself is maybe the best decision we made, if not one of, it's certainly one of the best decisions we've made because the, the support of Columbus, Ohio for Columbus, Ohio has been great. And there, we couldn't ask for a better community to be a part of. And, um, and actually the, the um, success that we've had in working with some other distilleries and starting a guild here in Ohio, and then using that guild and the relationships that, that it's able, been able to foster to change some laws in Ohio, it really, is a, it really is a nice place to have a craft distillery now. And so we kind of looked at it and said, how do we take where we want to be and the people we want to be around and how do we make sure that we can make it uh, an environment that works for us? And so we, we were fortunate to be able to do that. Um, and then as far as the influence on the whiskey, so, you know, we're, we're so close to Kentucky and, and we talk a lot about how do we differentiate from these guys that have so much history and so much, uh, such high quality product coming out of that state. And, and there's actually, you know, not shockingly, there's been a lot of learning from us, from them. And so, um, but at the same time, you know, everything we do is a little bit different. So when we started out, the equipment we used and the processes that we used um, were, were so far from what they do in Kentucky. Now we've seen, we've, we've um, adopted some of their stuff and uh, learned from them and we're not out trying to, to mirror what they do, but you know, when you look at the efficiencies and things like that and the cost to produce a barrel, um, you know, it's, it's just as a business owner, you want to learn from the best. And so um, we've definitely picked up some things there, but on a flavor side, you know, we are, you know, we char our barrels a little bit more, a little bit heavier than I think they do down there. And um, we go through a process that really cleans out and we take some real care in cleaning out our base spirit that goes into those barrels and um, our warehouse is a little bit different um, because we're not putting it in a rick house. There's not quite as much change in uh, temperature. So there are some factors that are different. Um, and I don't know that those factors would necessarily just be because we're in Ohio. I mean, we're very close to Kentucky. Um, but because we're, we're small batch and we're craft, we're able to do some things that are different and unique to us. So what I'm hearing is uh, tighter heads and tails cuts. Yes. Yep. Uh, for sure. The, uh, I mean, being close to Kentucky, I'm assuming be basically on the same kind of limestone shelf that everyone makes a big deal about. Yeah. And on the water side, like it's, it's not as sexy, but we have some technology that we've purchased to help us control our water that we're introducing back into the spirit. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing water that we're putting in there. And um, we use, we have a number of filters of water coming into the system or coming into our uh, building, including an RO filter 
Um, and so we do get put really, really pure water back in. Gotcha. And uh, I did want to ask about the, uh, the stills as well. So based on what I saw on the website, I keep knocking the microphone around. That's going to be difficult. So based on what is on the website, you have um, three column pot still, and then a doubler on top, or at least a bulb on top. Yeah. And so uh, I'm on, curious. On our, yeah. So we have, we have two stills running. We have a German built still uh, from Kota and it has a big pot with a whiskey helmet on top. And then there's three columns beside it. And um, then we have a continuous still. So that, that Kota is, a, is truly a pot still at 660 gallons. You run one batch at a time. And then on the other end of the distillery, we have a continuous column still. And it is, uh, because our building height, it's broken up into four different columns, even though it runs like one column, the way the pumps and, and the system work. And so um, we run our bourbon all on the continuous still. And the fourth column on that still is a, um, it's a, uh, basically a reverse still, and it allows us to really dial in those heads cuts. So if you think about a still and the way it works, when you, you have every, you have all this liquid at the bottom of the still, and that's your heat source, and you're boiling the alcohol over the top of the still, and then everything that's in that bottom of the still, that all gets pulled off and, and discarded. You're keeping everything that goes over the top. Well, in that reverse uh, the fourth column that we have in there, it's a demethylizer. So it's a reverse still. And we keep the temperature a little lower and we boil off the really light alcohols, the heads. And so the heads come over the top of the still and then everything that's in that bottom, that's what we're keeping. That's what comes out. That's the hearts. And so if you think about it this way, in the first column, we're taking off all the bad stuff that's heavier than alcohol. And then in the second, in the last column, the fourth one, we're taking off all the bad stuff that's lighter than alcohol. And so we're, we're, we're left with this heart's cut that is delicious. And, and the way this still is set up, it's very digital and we can dial it in very, really, really tight. And we can mess with it just a degree on each side and taste the flavor difference in our, in our white dog. And so that allows our distillers to really dial it in where they want it. It sounds fascinating that it, it seems like a reverse process for, what you would usually think of, you usually think of the heads come off first, then the you deal with the tails and the fuselage later on. Um, You mentioned that part of the still construction is because of the building space that you're in. Mm -hmm. Um, Beyond, uh, not beyond, I guess, but in parallel to that, are there any other distilleries that you know of that are using that kind of a system? Yeah, so there are. Um, This still was built in Montana and there are a number of distilleries across the U.S. that have a similar uh, system. Um, there are also, I think Vendome makes a still really similar to it. Um, it's, it's a little bit different, Vendome's, um, but it does, does a lot of the same stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that uh, system we've been running since 2015. And so our whiskey that we're into now came off of that still. And I have to say it, it makes some delicious bourbon. Absolutely. And that's a good uh, transition into, you know, normally on an episode, like I said, I would do the, the bourbons or the whiskey kind of by proof and go up mm-hmm. either by proof or by age. Uh, but with the changeover in still type and in a number of things in the mid 2010s, let's say 
I wanted to ask first about the cast strength bourbon. Yeah. So, so I've tried uh, two batches of it. The first one was uh, one of the earlier batches, the, the five grain mm-hmm. batch. And then the second one was more uh, contemporary one, you know, more recent one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, both are very good. There was a, a difference between them, of course, you know, five grains versus uh, four, three, three, we are three, three grain. Now. Okay. Yep. Yep. So uh, in the context of that switchover, I'd love to hear, you know, how did the first cast strength recipe come to be? And then how and why the transition to now a three grain recipe instead? Yeah. So it's, uh, it, it's been an interesting progression here. So, uh, so our three, our, our cast strength is four year old bourbon that we pull out of our barrels and we age in our apple brandy. We finish in our apple brandy barrels and it hits six years. And I believe that's probably what you had the six year old cast yes. strength to finish in apple brandy barrels. Yeah. Yes. Cause we do have another, uh, Notino finish that we sell at cast strength. But, um, so it, this is our, some of our best bourbon that we pull out and finish. And then we sell it at cast strength. And so if I back up a little bit, our four-year bourbon, so all our bourbon that we were making at the beginning was five grain. We used corn, rye, barley, but we also had some wheat in there and we had some spelt. And spelt was our nod to Ohio and Ohio, Ohio grows more spelt than any other state. And that was part of our grain bill. And we had a local farmer growing spelt and then we would mill it on site. And, um, you know, we got to this point with our mill that a couple things happened at once. Uh, we were testing some different recipes just to, just for flavor. And we were um, getting some pressure uh, from our insurance company about having a mill on site. And we bought this head frame still, this continuous still in 2015. And so all this stuff came together. And what happened was, and it, and it all, um, you know, pushed us in this direction, but we were we have been experimenting with this three grain mash bill that we really, really liked. And we were convinced that that distillate clear distillate was better than our distillate of the other one. And we had a few barrels aging just to see, but we didn't wait four years. We waited a little bit of time, but you know, it's one of those things that we were talking about at the beginning. It takes so long to see if you have a theory to test that theory and see if it works. So we were really liking what this three grain was doing. And then our head frame still, um, we had to crack our grain at a finer grind than the pot still that we've been using before. And so we just got this new still and we were finding that our mill on site couldn't quite grind to the fineness that we needed. And our insurance company was putting pressure on it. And so, you know, we started looking around and what we found was, um, it was going to be easier if we bought ground grain that was already ground. And so that kind of put our spelt farmer out and um, because we didn't have a way, he didn't have a way to grind it. And we didn't, we liked the flavor of this other one more. So it all came together and we started, we changed, we decided then, hey, we're going to change our mash bill. This is where we're going to go. And we've been really pleased with that and and excited about where it's going. And and of course, you know, we support a lot of corn farmers and rye farmers and barley farmers. Um, But the uh that all kind of came together at once and so when we first started filling these apple brandy barrels we still had the five grain in there that was our mash bill and then we got to uh just the three grain left and so that filled filled those barrels and it was 
uh, it has actually played out really, really well. I don't know what your favorite was between the two, but um, I really like where we are with our mash bill and, and you know, our, our whiskey over the last three years has taken some really big strides. And I think a lot of those factors that I was just mentioning have played into that. Uh, you know, I'll be honest as I always am with the, with the stillers and the distilleries. I did actually enjoy both of them mm-hmm. quite a bit, uh, but there is certainly a difference, you know, um, mm-hmm. I think the simplest way to put it is that in strictly on flavor alone, like would I sip this every day would, you know, an everyday drinker, I would go with the three green, mm-hmm. but if I were trying to, uh, let's say expose a new whiskey drinker to something a little different, a little, you know, exploring different mash bills and such while still having a good product that isn't just a mash bill for mash bill's sake. It's, you know, mash right. bill that also tastes good. Then I would also show them the five grain with the spelt. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, as far as kind of more esoteric grains go, usually see triticale first and, uh, and other ones, but spelt, not so much. You mentioned that in Ohio, you're, you're growing more spelt than uh, anywhere else, you say? Or, or Yeah, I think it's yeah. Ohio is the number one spelt producer in the U.S. Right. So, you know, that it would make sense that that, w- that might be an initial component mm-hmm. of the mash bill, whereas it wouldn't, you know, let's say in New York or yeah. Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but I, I genuinely did enjoy both of them. And uh, the... Well, I'll hold off on talking about the the second one a little more because I have a question later on on that. But sure. um, jump back to uh, this is a perfect time to now go back to the bottled and bond. So uh, I usually don't call out other publications when doing these interviews. I'll do the, <laughs> the podcast and other things. But um, I did want to mention that your your mention in Vine Pair. Yeah, yeah. Um. So you know. Your four-year bourbon <clears throat> released last summer is one of the best bourbons under fifty dollars for twenty twenty-two, uh, and they, the writers of Vineper spoke uh, or wrote, I guess, <laughs> very highly. They wrote highly about what you've done with the sourcing aspect of it, uh, what you've accomplished with the blend. Um, I'd love to know just more about how that came to be, like how the blend came to be, and the decision to source or partially source uh, when you're producing your own stuff as well. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Penderen, Portiskeg, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. Yeah, so we, you know, we looked at our our um, bourbon portfolio, and this is about the time when we were going to 
see our bourbon graduate to a bottled and bond. I say graduate. It was exciting to, to get to that point. And as we were looking at it, um, we also had watched over the last 11 years, these other distilleries that were starting after us and sourcing bourbon and putting together some great products, really, and able to grow faster than us and pass us and uh, do some fun stuff with sourcing. And, and so we talked internally and got to the point where we decided it would be fun to get into that sourcing and be able to share our bourbon with more people. And so we, we knew that over the last, you know, since we had launched our bourbon, I think it had been 11 years, we had 11 or nine years because uh, we launched it two years in. So we were sitting there with nine years of experience of selecting our own bourbons out of our rickhouse and blending those together to create delicious product. And so um, we kind of looked at it and said, we have some expertise in this area. Let's take a few of our bourbons and go source some bourbon and see if we can't create something that's, that's truly amazing and be able to share that with, with our customers and with more customers that don't know about us. And so that's what we did. Uh, we went out and uh, found some great bourbon and we mixed it with our, some of our bottled and bonds. So that's finished or yeah, some of our bottled and bond stock. Uh, we also miss mixed it with some of our um, apple brandy finished barrel strength bourbon. And so really three great bourbons are in this bottle and um, it's, it's priced for an everyday drinker. Like the, the article said, we've got it under $50 and it truly is great bourbon. You look at the three bourbons in there and I think all three of them are usually priced higher than 50. So sometimes I think we're a little crazy, but, um, but the reception on that has been truly tremendous. And uh, it's been a nice, um, a nice addition with that alongside of our bottled and bond on the shelf. Hey, fantastic. And I, you're right that most of the, any of the bourbons in that blend could sell for 50, 60 easily. Yeah. Craft, craft, quote unquote, craft pricing alone would kind of dictate that in many places, but I mean, good on you for being able to do it at a, at a lower price point. Well, we, you know, uh, we started, when we started this brand um, in, I say uh, we, so when Dave and I started it, we, we had this conversation that we're in Columbus, Ohio. We want our spirits to feel a little bit Midwest where it's, we kind of under promise and over deliver. And part of that is pricing too. We want you to be able to reach for this bottle and not have it crazy high priced. And when you drink it, you're like, wow, that, that really is delicious. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't say that to take a shot at anybody on the coast. Um, it, the cost of living's higher there. It's, it's much cheaper here. And so um, that was kind of our way to say like, hey, let's try to keep costs under control so people can get some good whiskey at a good price. Okay, fair enough. So before we're uh, jumping back to the, to the cast strength for a different uh, line of questioning on that, with the bourbon and let's stay with bourbon. Uh, where did the apple brandy concept come in? So again, it kind of goes back to local roots. I grew up here in central Ohio and I, we had, uh, I think two and a half acres growing up. So I, it was kind of, I was the last house in, in a very small town on the edge of country. And so like really literally the city limit sign was right next to my house. 
And so even though we only had two and a half acres, it felt like we had 200 acres because we just, you know, it was fields next to us. And there were apple trees all over. And so I kind of grew up with all these apples around. And every year we would uh, go pick a ton of apples and, and uh, a local guy down the road had a press and we would go make cider and then freeze it all. Uh, my mom always, we, we made a whole bunch of applesauce and a whole bunch of cider in the fall and just froze it all and had it all year. I, I think we canned the applesauce and frozen cider. But, um, and so you kind of, when you're making spirits, it's a lot of grains and fruits that are grown locally that originally that's, that's um, what people did to preserve those uh, resources so they wouldn't spoil. And so, at Watershed, you know, we had conversations like, what do we grow here? What, what do we have locally that we can use? And it came back to apples uh, a few times. And so then we started looking around and we found a local guy that um, had a cider press and could get us some cider. And so we got some in and we distilled some on our column still and we distilled some on our pot still. And it was wildly different. So the pot still was this really uh, red apple, ripe, um, earthy distillate that came off with lots of like, I call them darker flavors, the ripes, the, um, the sweeter. And then on the column still, and this is the same, the same fermentation batch on the column still, it came off the still really bright, tart, green apple uh, with some great, with, a, with just an amazing nose on it. And so we, we were looking at both of those distillates and this bright one off the column still, we felt like you could put in a bottle and sell clear, but we decided let's put them both in a barrel and let's let them age and let's see what we like. And I think we had, you know, call it 10 barrels of each. It wasn't a bunch and let it age for a couple of years. And when we tasted it, um, we loved them both. But when you combined the two, it was more complex and uh, just an amazing uh, apple flavor and a great finish on it. Um, you almost had the nose from the bright apple and this big long finish from the dark ripe uh, distillate. And so those two together really made a delicious spirit. And so now when we distill the apple brandy, um, we, we distill part on the, on the column and part on the pot still. And what's interesting, there's not a big apple brandy market really anywhere. Uh, it's a very small market, but for us, it was really exciting to make it. And we've seen that we are out creating apple brandy fans. And, and what we find is, so if you haven't had apple brandy and you're listening, don't think of apple brandy as like, uh, it's not apple pucker. It's not sweet. It's not overly apple. It's basically really similar to bourbon. And so you're doing many of the same things. You're instead of starting with corn and, and rye and barley and fermenting it and then distilling it, you're starting with apple. And you're when you ferment, you you eliminate all the sugar in there. So there's no sweetness. And then we're we're boiling that alcohol off and then putting it in a charred oak barrel for a number of years. And so really what you get is it's very bourbon-esque with some with some distinct ripe fruit notes in there at the end. Um, and so bourbon drinkers tend to, when they taste apple brandy, be pretty excited and, and uh, realize that, oh, hey, I, I actually really love apple brandy too. Um, and, it, and it plays well in, you know, you take a Manhattan or you take an old fashioned, 
and you do, um, you, you cut your bourbon in half and you add half apple brandy in there. Uh, it's pretty amazing what it can do to those, those cocktails. Absolutely. And like, you know, I'm based in New York, so I come from a state where one of the few states, as you pointed out, where there is an apple brandy market Yeah. for whether it's yeah. apple brandy, applejack, whatever you may call it, but uh, you know, long tradition of that. And, uh, but you're right. There are pretty few states in the country. There's, you know, New York, New Jersey, uh, Ohio, certainly uh, Washington, of course, because it's known yeah. for, for all the apples. I think Minnesota but... and Wisconsin sell a decent amount of apple brandy. Um, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, there's not, it's not near as popular, uh, of course, as, as like whiskey would be. Sure. Absolutely. Um, but I agree with you for, for listeners who haven't tried it, it's, it's really worth trying. Like if you can try, I think I've tried your guys. Um, I would have to go back and check because I, I <laughs> this was about six months ago that I tried for uh, bourbon and banter. So um, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty sure I tried your guys. Of course, I've tried a bunch of others as well. Uh, yeah. It's worth really trying them. And Certainly we can get you a bottle if you need to. If you need to I mean, it. I, I won't turn you down on that. I've, <laughs> uh, I'm looking at doing a few episodes on brandy and uh, different similar uh, finishing casts in general, because it's, it's important to the industry. Maybe yeah, not as no, much in America as it is in, in Scotland and such, but it's, a, you know, it's important. Yeah. Um, you, you get into Europe and especially Germany and there's a whole bunch of farmers with, oh yeah, um, you know, hundred gallon stills in their garage or in their shed where they're distilling fruits and brandies and schnapps and all kinds of stuff, which is, I just love the variety on that side of it. You know, if, if you're distilling different combinations of um, corn, rye, and barley, there's some variety, but you start distilling plums or peaches or pears or apples uh, or cherries, and there's wide variety. It's wild. So anyway, there's some fun variety there with the brandies. Absolutely. And I'll throw back to my very first guest on this podcast was uh, Will Persons over at Old Time Spirits, who, yeah, doing a Petrika, a Plum Schlubowitz, and uh, exactly what you're talking about. It's yeah. delicious stuff. So uh, before I get completely off track, want to circle back to uh, the, to now the uh, new cast strength. And specifically that uh, you guys at Watershed were one of the few distilleries partnered with uh, Marianne Eves. Yeah. In a recent set. So uh, I just wanted to ask about, you know, how that came about, what that process was like from the distillery point of view. So this was her Eves Blind, her inaugural Eves Blind project. And, you know, when Marianne reached out to us and asked if, um, if we would be interested to be a part of this, we got really excited. Uh, and, you know, she was highlighting some great bourbons and whiskeys outside of Kentucky with this project. And if, if you're not familiar with it, look up Eve's Blind. And um, it was a really cool way to do this. And it truly was blind where she sent these samples out uh, to the people that were involved with it. And, um, and, and they got to taste them and they didn't know what it was. They didn't know where it was distilled. And then she got online and talked them through a tasting. And so it really was this cool experience. And then at the end of the year, she unveiled who the eight distilleries were. 
and we were really fortunate to be a part of that. And there were some really fun distilleries. You mentioned Kings County earlier, those, they were a part of it. Um, and so there were these fun distilleries across the U.S. that are doing really exciting things. And, you know, it was, it was interesting to watch because she came and um, picked a barrel, a single barrel at each distillery, but then she also got samples from each distillery and created a custom blend. And so both of those went out to the people that got to see, hey, here's one barrel that she really liked. And then here's a blend she created from the distillery. And the blend she created from our distillery was truly delicious. And she took a different approach than we take where, and I hope Marianne doesn't mind me telling her approach. Uh, I, don't, I don't think she does. Um, but she starts with the finish. So she finds what barrel she wants to be the true finishing note. And then layers notes backwards from there, adding onto it, and then finally gets to the nose. And so that was pretty interesting to see her approach and how she did that. The other thing she does that as a, um, as a, a business owner, I haven't done in the past, um, you know, when I do it, I'm like, well, we'll do this whole barrel and that whole barrel and this whole barrel. Well, she was, um, you know, very dialed in. And for this special project, it was, it was, um, it was totally worth it. But, you know, it was, you know, a third of this barrel and three quarters of that barrel and an eighth of that barrel. And so it was very dialed in, um, which, you know, my production team, they were great about it and they were excited to do it, but I could, we couldn't do that every time. It's a different level of, you know, dialing in a recipe, but it was fun to work with her. And uh, we definitely learned some stuff and um, came out with such a great product. It is truly delicious and it's beautiful. She did such a nice job with the packaging. Well, Hey, you know, you know, these state, uh, uh, every state, is going to have to go through this. And I don't envy them. It's a challenge because we're going to this world as consumers where we want direct ship. We want to buy on the internet. And so you have this crash that's, that's really happening right now of consumer demand for the ability to buy spirits online and uh, three tier systems in each state that aren't set up for that. And so there is going to be a lot of people and organizations trying to learn how to navigate that and states trying to set it up so that it's available. And so it's just going to take time. I think every state knows they got to go down that path. And I know Ohio's taken some steps to try to figure it out, but it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. Um, but as consumers, we look at it and we're like, come on, come on, let's go. And I know that they're, I know they're probably all working really hard to make it happen, but it's, it's just a, it's a little bit tricky. Absolutely. I, I talked a couple episodes ago now with Sam Filmus from Impex Beverages and, mm. you know, he started on the Scotch side and importing into California. Now they're distributed, I think, uh, blanking on the number. It's a little early for me to be remembering exact numbers, but they're in most states with their distribution. Yeah. Um, but that being said, you know, he's at the, the three tier system in on the federal level and three tier systems in each individual state, let alone control versus semi-control versus non-control is just a beast to work. It through. is. Yeah. Um, no, it, it and, truly isn't. I mean, I look at our business and that's the reason that we really sell into a very limited number of States. Um, every state you go into, it's more liquor law, it's more navigating, it's more cost. And so um, we try to be very thoughtful about States that we go into. Absolutely. And uh, on that, on that note, cause I just want to talk about distribution. 
I, I've talked with a couple of distilleries who are, uh, you know, smaller without any negative connotation on that word, smaller mm-hmm. distilleries. And I'm thinking of, for example, still Austin down in Texas. I said, you know, they self-distribute to two states, Texas mm-hmm. and Louisiana, because it's, it's there. They can literally drive it across yeah. the border um, in whatever legal way they mean by that. But uh, they partner <laughs> right, with, right. you know, they partner with a, a distribution network like a, a Casker, as a Flavia, or something like that to get to 38 states instead of just those two. Now, not every distillery has both the, uh, you know, the cash available, the the volume available of inventory to do that kind of thing. But that does seem a way to kind of, I don't want to say circumvent because that's not really the purpose of it, but right. to rise above the uh, distribution issues that are really, you know, vestiges of prohibition at this point, rather than things moving the industry forward. Um, so what does Watershed's distillery uh, distribution rather look like? So uh, Ohio is obviously our biggest market. We self-distribute there. Uh, and I say self-distribute. The state of Ohio is a great partner. Um, they handle the logistics. Um, but uh, that, that is the bulk of our business as our home state. Our number two state is Georgia. And we have partnered with uh, United down there. And United and the Hertz family has been a great partner for, we've been with them for a number of years. And that market's really grown Um and we see our brands doing really well down in Atlanta and Savannah. And then um, we've been fortunate to partner with Great Lakes up in uh, Michigan. And they've done a really nice job. And, um, and then beyond that, we do we have um, distribution in Illinois, Kentucky, and New York. And, but, but, and it kind of goes in that order. Illinois, we've, we've really started to see that come on and it's starting to do really well. Kentucky, it's um, we're in the big guy's backyard and, and I like to think of Ken- Kentucky. It sounds big cause it's a state, but it's really, uh, Southern Cincinnati that we sell into there. Um, and then New York, it's kind of been a, a very small drop in the bucket. It, it'd be hard to find us there. Um, we do have a, a partner in New York with VOS. Um, but it's been, um, harder for us to figure out that market and uh, probably because we spent most of our time in Manhattan and it's just a different animal than anything else that we've seen. And so I think we were excited to go there, um, but we find um, we're able to make a difference in some of these other markets. Makes sense. And yeah, it's difficult. I'm based in Queens. So I'm in Manhattan all the time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for distribution purposes, I mean, you know, but, Manhattan, Long Island's the two counties above it are are one network, mainly Empire and Southern for distribution. Yeah. And then everything above that, the entirety of the rest of the state is another just a system. different animal. Yeah. Different yeah. animal. Yeah. Um, and while we're fortunate in, in the city area that we get a lot of stuff, like I don't know if we if I was in a different area of the state that I would be able to get a watershed product, even if it might be difficult to find, I could find it in in this area, but uh, we pay of course in premiums and such on that, but but we get the the pick of the litter. Um, But no, that's great. Are there plans for, uh, for larger distribution in the short term, or are you pretty happy with where you guys are right now? Actually short term, we are not going to expand. So I think for the next three years, you probably won't see us in any other States and we'll just continue to work in the States we're in. And that goes back to some of the um, 
challenges to get into new states, not just the legal side, but also, you know, it's, it's finding the right distributor and putting the resources into the market. So that's the biggest thing we see. We just don't have the resources to take on a bunch of markets. And we feel like we're, we're kind of barely keeping up with the ones that we're in. And so we're going to continue to focus on those and see uh, if we can have success in those. Um, but we do hope to get back to expanding to different markets at some point. Um, you know, uh, it's always fun to, I think about when we first started calling on Atlanta and first started calling on Detroit and just the fun to go get to know people in those cities and see what they were doing in the culinary and in the cocktail scene. And um, that's always fun and exciting. So I know our team has their eye on some, some cities out there that they'd like to be, like to be involved in, but um, for the time being, we're, we're going to push pause on more cities. Totally fair. Mm -hmm. Totally fair. So uh, we're going to make more, we're going to make more whiskey. We're going to do that first. before we. It goes, goes back to the volume thing. You gotta, you gotta have the volume of inventory to be able to back it up. So, uh, and you know, again, no knock at all on that. Better to have smaller inventory with better whiskey than to have huge inventory and lesser quality. So you, yeah, no, that's, that's definitely been our philosophy all along. And, um, it's fun to see it really playing out because I think, I think our customers are, are really enjoying what we've got. I can say yes is one of them. So <laughs> thanks. But, um, so um, I know we are getting close to the top of the hour, but I'm uh, just, uh, you know, two more things I wanted to hit on. So um, first one being, of course, as the founder, so you've been there since the beginning and for a long time, uh, as far as I know, you had been the one really as the quote unquote head distiller, mm-hmm. um, whether you, you know, had it, the title exactly is kind of irrelevant, but you were functionally the head distiller. Yep. And yes. Distiller. Um, but now you guys have a uh, an official head distiller, a new um, person coming in. So what was it like both giving up that role and then um, hiring a new person to take it over? You know, it, it, um, it's been interesting, this whole progression, because when we started, it was just two people and I was one of them. And you knew where everything was in the distillery. You knew what was going on in every aspect of the business. And really, if you couldn't find a wrench, it was because you misplaced the wrench. Uh, <laughs> that was the only, you know, and, and so it was, you made everything and you did everything. And then when we hired a few first few people, it was teaching those people and, and being with them every step of the way. But you still kind of knew where everything was and what, every, what was going on. And, you know, we knew it was, it was like a really small family. And we've grown and we're, we're um, our team's gotten bigger and we have a restaurant on site. And so we got to this point where um, it made sense to hire a head distiller that, that could bring more uh, firepower than I was bringing. And you, know, you, you see, you think about it, like a lot of my knowledge came from traveling around and visiting other craft distillers, going to conferences, visiting distilleries in Kentucky and you know, reading up on stuff, practicing, you know, like we tried this, we tried that, we tried different things. And so when we got to this point, it it actually got pretty exciting to start interviewing some of these distiller candidates. And when we found Aaron and he and I connected, I knew that this guy could come in and really help us. And so it was a little bit scary. I think when we started having the conversation about bringing somebody in, but by the time we got to Aaron and we were talking to him, 
and realized what he could bring, uh, it got exciting. And so Aaron Harris came up. He had spent a number of years in Kentucky. He had been at Barton 1792 and uh, at Lux Row. Uh, since they had started, he'd been at Lux Row. He helped open that. And so when he came on board with our team, you know, we were excited to have him. And what we saw was this instant, um, our efficiency started just getting better and better and better as he came in. And mm -hmm. so um, the distillate, he started tweaking some cleaning practices, some uh, cook practices and some just, just little things here and there. And what happened was, you know, we, we started tasting the distillate compared to what we had before. And we really liked the, what his tweaks were doing. Um, and so that's kind of the fun, sexy side of it with this taste. The less sexy side is this, um, you know, cost to produce a barrel going down as our efficiency goes up. But for as a for business owner, I'm like, this, all this is great. This is fun. And so, and the, the, the guys really like Aaron and responded well to him. And so to have a leader like that come in and bring some of that knowledge along with uh, just being a great guy that you want to hang out and have bourbon with. Um, it, it's been great having Aaron here and uh, we're really excited about where he's taking us and um, just the amount of throughput that he's been able to, to get out of our equipment. It's been amazing. And he and I right now are working on, you know, what's, what's the next expansion look like and what does that equipment look like and how do we get there? So um, some fun, exciting stuff with him on board. I was going to say that's the uh, exactly the way I wanted to close out was to ask you what's, I know you're keeping the distribution as it is right now, but what's uh, next for the distillery on site and in both the, the, product and space? Yeah, there's some fun stuff and um, I'll kind of let the cat out of the bag on one thing. So, so Ohio liquor control came through and, and we did this thing where they picked a few private barrels last year and we sold them and it was, it was really fun. They, those barrels went so quickly and, and they, they truly, it, 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 people don't realize this, but a few people that work in Ohio liquor control have some really great palates. They're great at finding barrels that people are going to like and, um, you know, they've been doing it for a bit. They, they really are experts. And so it's fun to have them come in and let them taste through some barrels because they usually zero in on some really great ones. Well, we're going to release five of them this year. Um, and they're, they're exciting. I say we're going to release five. There is a, and I'm not supposed to talk about it, but there may be a sixth barrel. We had one. So all, all the five are all three grain mash bill, but there is a five grain mash bill barrel the last one that we have and i believe it's going to get snuck in with this pick because they were it's it's wildly different and it's kind of like unique for the five grain it has so much flavor going on it's incredible um so when you were talking earlier i was like i should probably mention to him that this uh this five grain uh barrel the last one's coming out and it's it's I don't think it's six years old, but it's close. I can't remember. I have to go back and see. It's definitely over five years old. So it's been sitting around for a bit in the back. And um, I know it's it's kind of legendary around the distillery because we've all been kind of watching it. So that's a really fun one. Uh, that's exciting. It's coming. And then, you know, Aaron's really passionate about rye. And so, you know, this is way down the pipe, but he has um, been – been putting away some rye and you know we've been taking you know he has several different clear distillate recipes he's been messing with and um 
you know, different proofs, putting it into the, to the barrel. So I'm excited to see how that plays out, but uh, I know his team's excited about that. So those are some of the fun things we have coming. And um, you know, if you're ever, if your listeners are ever in Columbus, Ohio, we do tours. We have an amazing restaurant and bar on site. So stop in and see us. And uh, if, if we don't have a tour set up, you can certainly stop in and have a cocktail at the bar and you can look right through the glass and see the distillation floor. And we're usually running, uh, 24 hours a day. So, um, you know, usually there's people in there doing stuff. That's awesome. I will, uh, if I can't make it there, I will have my friends in Indiana and Illinois and I think Ohio, but certainly Northern Kentucky. Yeah. Go hunt, hunting for a single barrel or two and definitely that five grain if I can yeah. find yeah. it. Um, but other than that, uh, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time, uh, to do this morning. Um, I really look forward to having this episode out. Um, I will make sure to include in the show notes, you know, where everyone can find Watershed, where they can uh, follow you guys on social media, website, um, how to order. Um, hang on with me for a second after we finish recording. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. This has been great. And um, definitely stop by, stop by and see us next time you're in Ohio. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Greg. Talk to you soon. Thanks, David.